Well, hello, everyone. Before we roll the dice and go right into episode 17 of DiceCast, there are a few pre-show notes that are necessary. As you may have noticed, we have not posted an episode of the podcast in quite some time. The initial discussion in this episode of what was then known as D&D 5th Edition and now known as D&D Next was recorded in February of 2012 and thus includes much information which is dated at this time. There are plenty of other podcasts out there that have more current information about D&D Next, including many that were recorded at Gen Con 2012. We decided to include this here to offer our listeners some perspective on the evolution of the understanding of this new edition of D&D, which is now known to be coming out sometime in the year 2014. Of course, the discussion of indie versus mainstream role-playing games and the interview with cartoonist Stan Sakai are timeless and need no explanation. We will have more episodes in the near future, with new voices and new format. But for now, welcome to DiceCast. Episode 17, D&D, Indie RPGs, and Stan Sakai. Yeah! Welcome to DiceCast, episode 17. Today we'll be having an interview with San Sakai, recorded at the uh, Montreal Comic Con. And we'll also be discussing some news about the gaming industry, including the announcement of D&D 5th edition and the re-release of 1st edition. And we will be having a little discussion about indie games and mainstream games, right after this. If you like this show, come on over to RPGpodcast.com, where you'll find dozens more great role-playing podcasts. So first off, we got the big news earlier in the month of January that Wizards of the Coast will be releasing a new edition of Dungeons & Dragons. They're not calling it 5th edition, but everybody online is. They're saying it's a new iteration of the D&D RPG. Some bloggers are sarcastically referring to it as D&D Next. All we know is that sometime in the next two years, there will be a new edition of the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game. Now, what makes this new is that sometime in the spring of 2012, the design process will be open to fans of the game. They will be taking design suggestions, rules variants, and other tweaks, things that the fans would like to see, 
online through Wizards of the Coast's website and to incorporate them into the new edition by Gen Con 2013, which will be August of that year, because Gen Con is always in August, they will have a draft of the rules publicly on display in some form or other, and most likely this means that the first books will come out in the spring of 2014. This is what happened in 2008 with D&D 4th Edition. They announced the new edition at Gen Con 2007. Then it was in June of 2008 that the Player's Handbook for 4th Ed came out. July, it was the Dungeon Master's Guide. And August, it was the Monster Manual. So we can assume that there will be some sort of uh, sequence like this. Generally speaking... It's safest to say that the next edition of D&D, whatever it's going to be called, will come out in the spring of 2014. Obviously, this is not a variation of 4th edition. I mean, 4th edition just came out less than four years ago. And then after that, it was discontinued, and now we have, like, D&D 4th Edition Essentials, um, which a lot of people sort of called 5th Edition or 4.5, but not really. It isn't really discontinued. I mean, Essentials is still considered 4th Edition here, but the funny thing is is that Wizards of the Coast does plan to keep releasing stuff compatible with D&D 4th Edition right up to that time, and I don't know how well that's going to do for their sales. I mean, I remember back in 2004 when uh, GURPS 4th Edition was first released. Steve Jackson Games was still releasing 3rd edition compatible books and supplements even after 4th edition came out, up to a year later. I think they still put out some uh, 3rd edition compatible GURPS World War II books as recently as a year ago. A full 6 years after GURPS 4th edition was first released. But it's important that, yes, Essentials is like a new expression of the 4th edition rules, but it's still 4th edition. But the actual game book from 4th edition, I mean, I think they've stopped printing them. You can't really find them anymore. They did discontinue the uh, core books format for 4th edition. They did stop putting out the player's handbook, the dungeon master's guide, and the monster manual, and want to put it out in the form of boxed sets. So that's a good point, and most likely the game that, just for all intents and purposes, we'll refer to as 5th edition here, because God knows what the name is going to be later on. The game that's going to be called 5th edition is probably going to come out in a box set. That just seems to be their modus operandi these days. Well, it sounds to me that all of these uh, new editions, I mean, there was the Warhammer uh, fantasy role-playing game that came out as a box set slash guard set slash tile set slash what's happened to it. It was a giant box with everything in it. It's, um, you mean the third edition of Warhammer Fantasy. Yeah, w- whatever. Yeah. Aren't they coming up with fourth edition now? It's, uh, I think everybody's coming up with new editions. What about Palladium? I think they're still a fifth edition, right? Palladium has had relatively few releases in the past few years. Last year, the most they've released were a couple of uh, issues of the Rifter magazine, but as far as major releases for the Rifts or the Palladium Fantasy RPG or their various other titles it's been pretty vacant but back on topic here this is an interesting thing that uh, Wizards of the Coast are doing 
for fifth edition by including fan input here. Yeah, I think they would essentially what they want to do is called crowdsourcing. Mm. Um, now the point is, all that input really going to pan out into a better game, or is going to be like consensus of everybody else wants to have their little rules in there, and they're going to try to please everyone, and then end up, you know coming up with something that will just not appeal to most people who are not going to bother going on the site and then log in and give them their input because, you know, quite frankly, how many diehard core gamers are there they are going to want to actually participate in this crowdsourcing exercise and is this new game going to be essentially something that will please them or piss them off because their input wasn't, uh, you know, kept? It's a little difficult. I mean, sound, to me, it sounds like basically they're saying, well, a lot of people sort of told us that we did a bad job with 4th edition and 4th edition essentials, and now we're going to do this way, and if you complain about well, it's not our fault, it's your own product because you're the one that told us to do it that way. Well, okay, that's an interesting way of putting it, to make it as cynical as possible. Thing is, is when they announced that they want to incorporate fan input, uh, an article that appeared about this in the New York Times of all places, and there's a link to it in the show notes at dicecast.blogspot.com, the writer of that article suggested that they might be accused of just doing this as a token gesture than going ahead and publishing whatever it is they want to do anyway. And it certainly it is possible, but I think there's another precedent for this. Around the time 4th Ed was released in 2008, Paizo Publishing announced that they were going to come out with the Pathfinder RPG, which would be a reimagining of D&D 3.5, incorporating certain changes to it as suggested by fans, and they did an open playtest of it. They put out the first book as a PDF on their site. They announced this at Gen Con, and over the course of the next year, they incorporated fan design ideas into the game that eventually became the official release of the Pathfinder RPG. So I think that this is a little bit of a case of monkey see monkey do or rather dragon see dragon do it, it also feels too that they're actually coming up with this fifth edition or whatever they're going to be calling it very shortly after fourth and fourth edition has had some really bad reception it splintered off the hobby i mean people are still playing 3.5 now just like the 3.5 because against the fourth ad or fourth ad essential or pathfinder uh, which is uh, which yeah. is technically more popular than fourth ad and, and that sort of thing and it sounds like they just went okay well that thing just did not work at all let's just make a new game and let's hope that we'll be able to get back on the curb the other thing too is that there was a lot of after fourth ed was announced and a lot of people started playing 3.5 and so on uh, there's the whole Red Clone movement that sort of like happened. And now mm-hmm. they're actually saying that they will release first edition AD&D, which basically is basically saying out there, hey, you know, we're putting out the same thing that you guys are putting out, all Red Clones, except we actually own this one. This is the other big bit of news here. This came out in late January that uh, Wizards of the Coast is going to reprint what they call limited premium versions of the original advanced Dungeons & Dragons first edition books written by Gary Gygax, Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, and Monster Manual. Uh, They will be in hardcover. They will have new cover artwork, which I think is not a good idea at all if 
you're going to put out the first edition AD&D Player's Handbook, and it does not have the demon statue on the cover with the thief trying to jimmy out one of his gigantic gemstone eyes with a crowbar. Or the D&D Monster Manual with the succubus picture. Oh, it'll have the same internal art. So oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, Guys, you're, we're on it again. Yeah! Yeah, yeah, the naked succubus is still going to be in the Monster Manual. That you can yeah. you can guarantee. But I'm thinking of the giant Afridi on the cover of the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide or the Demon Statue on the Player's Handbook. It's got to be there or it ain't the authentic first edition core book. Mm. This is core books before they were even called core books. So why exactly are they coming up with all these things? I mean, obviously, if Forfiat was doing so well, they would not be coming up a new edition. I think that's what most people are seeing right now. Oh, no, like even the people from Wizards of the Coast at Gen Con in various episodes of the Tome Show podcast, they've said up front that they have heard feedback from their fans and they show concern. They used very diplomatic corporate language in order to say that, yes, they... People told us that we suck. Well, I wouldn't put it that far, but yeah, they definitely do see that there has been a, a public reaction which is not to their liking. One of the other things that you have to note, and this took place, I believe, back in September of 2011, is that Wizards of the Coast hired somebody. He's a new old person, Monty Cook. They've got the guy who made 3.0, not 3.5, but 3.0 of D&D working on game design and guarantee you his signature is going to be on what we're calling 5th edition in some way or other. So this is definitely a ploy that they're doing in order to bring in the old fans. Well, the old fans, mostly the 3.0 and 3.5 fans. I mean, 3.5 is essentially the same thing as 3.0, but I mean, it's just like I have a feeling they're trying to like bridge the gap. I mean, they when they basically shut down 3rd edition, by third edition, I mean 3.0, 3.5, 3 4.75, whatever you call it, and replace <laughs> it with fourth edition, saying, well, by the way, guys, it's all gone, and now we're playing this new thing that's kind of like World of Warcraft with cards. Then they pretty much alienated a lot of people that played the game, and they said, well, no, I'm going to learn a new game system. I'm going to play the old same game system. I mean, do they even have Thaku in fourth edition? Do they have Thaku in fifth? They didn't or have Thaku in third, for that matter. Yeah. One of the things that Wizards of the Coast did say in their announcement of the game that that we call Fifth is that they're trying to incorporate everything that everyone loved about the previous editions of D&D into the same system. And considering the radical changes that have gone from edition to edition, if you go all the way back to 1974 when the first box came out... I don't see how that's possible. What like the best things about the boxed edition is that it was pure and simple. Like the best thing about AD&D first edition, the Gygax books that they're putting out, I think really is just that it established all the conventions that every almost every role-playing game that followed carried forward. What were the best things about second ed that anyone could possibly want to incorporate into a new edition of D&D? Well, I guess second ed was something that most people played. When third ed came out, a lot of people migrated from second ed to third ed, 
And in a lot of ways, third ed, a lot of things that second had had in sort of like an embryonic form, like instead of calling them feats or proficiencies and stuff like that. But, it, you, know, well, you know, now the yeah. proficiencies are feats. Yeah, well, everything's a feat, you know. Yeah. It's like yeah, I haven't seen that many feats since, you know. But, I mean, it's since just like... to a shoe store. Yeah, though, so they, they have like a lot of stuff like that. But it feels to me that... These new editions, they're, they're saying, oh, it's going to be some new art, like they did with, you know, like they're saying, they come up with like the first edition, the AD and D book, but we'll have some new cover art. I mean, this fifth edition is going to be like the fifth element, and if you know, you try to be like you know, lots of glitz and stuff like that, because if there's no Mila Jojovich wrapped up in toilet paper, I mean, it's not going to go well. You just need to have some pizzazz, you know, to it. That was random. <laughs> No, but really, I mean, it's it's just the, uh, are they really going to be making a game that's going to be that different for the previous ones? What are, it's like... Oh, there's no point in making a new edition unless it's going to be a different game, and to one extent or another, incompatible. I think, though, something they should do is somehow create a way that you could upgrade your fourth edit characters to the new edition. Because right now they're putting out fourth ed books and supplements and stuff like that. And people are, I mean, as much as people like to say uh, say how much they dislike fourth edition, the people who are saying they dislike fourth edition are the people who are not playing it. You don't hear the unsilent majority out there, the people who are actually playing fourth ed. They exist. Well, I mean, the thing is, they had the same problem with third ad going to fourth ad. There was really no way to really come converting your characters without changing a heck of a lot of stuff. And that's why a lot of people didn't make the change. Yeah, and now if they're coming up with fourth ad to fifth ad, are they expecting people from third ad to migrate from third to fifth and skip fourth, and the people from fourth to just stay playing fourth? It seems like a lot of people are worried that it's going to splinter the hobby that much more. But, I mean... It can't be that as bad as keeping fourth ad right now because a lot of people are playing third ad versus fourth ad. There's well, a lot of really this. they're playing Pathfinder. Well, third ad Pathfinder is the same thing, you know, <laughs> uh, and 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 all the red clones and all that sort of thing. And it seems to me that they're actually trying to get back to get these people coming back and buying our fifth edition, quote unquote, or re-edition the first ad, trying to go back and get these people back to actually buying their stuff because you know they're actually getting the stuff online uh, with red clones and stuff like that. It seems, and the open GL and that sort of thing. It, like, it seems to me that they're actually realizing that with 4 Fed they actually went the wrong way and they're trying to get back and trying to get back in the game. Well, that, like you mentioned the OGL, the open gaming license, and that is a, a valid point here. It, one of the things that people were hotly speculating at the time that 4th Ed was announced was the regime under which it would be licensed and we had no hint of it until basically I think it was a month before the 4th edition player's handbook came out and the GSL, the game system license under which 4th ed was released was radically different from the OGL it was no longer you know, the rules are here, you can do what you want with them and you can put them into your book if you want, as long as you have this license notice. No, you are allowed only to refer to the rules by using specified approved terminology listed in our system reference document, and you may not include page numbers of the core books. That was like a real, real killer there. So the regime, the licensing regime under which 
the next edition comes out is anybody's guess. If they're truly going to pander to the fans, or rather pander, actually do what the fans want and what the developers want for that matter, they'll go back to the OGL. Or maybe they'll just like release it as a standard book, no OGL, no DSL, no uh, ASL, no whatever <laughs> acronyms. That'll shoot them. That that's shooting themselves in the foot because that what gave the market dominance, what made D and D third edition something so powerful that even they couldn't defeat it was the open licensing scheme. But at the same time, they one of the reasons I think they went for fourth edition was because there were too many people putting out third edition type of stuff. Mm. And a lot of the supplements were so bad that it got to a point where the moment you saw D20 on the cover, people just, you know, the stores didn't want to carry it because they were all that thing to sell. Well, this is true. Hasbro's annual report that was released uh, covering the year of 2006, possibly 2007, did not mention Dungeons & Dragons at all. It mentions Wizards of the Coast as a brand, not as a wholly owned subsidiary. But in the appendix to it, they did say that certain of their products have experienced competition from startup companies with a low overhead and low operating costs. And and they might or might not have mentioned licensed products. That is a cryptic reference to the D&D third ed third party developers. And this was identified by Hasbro, because remember, Hasbro is the owner of Wizards of the Coast, ultimately the creator of D&D. It's possible that somebody at Hasbro's corporate headquarters in Providence, Rhode Island, saw this going on and wanted to put it to a stop. As for the reason why the AD&D First Edition Core Books, Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, Monster Manual are going to be re-released... Certainly the people at Wizards of the Coast are aware of the success of the Red Clones. There's no denying that they are aware of Osric, Labyrinth, Lord, and other Red Clones. But the reason that is given for the release of these books is to benefit the Gygax Memorial Fund. This is a charity that was set up by the late Gary Gygax's widow, Gail Gygax, to build memorial for Gary Gygax in the library park in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. So this is why they're doing it. The whole discussion about 5th edition also brings up the issue of the so-called mainstream games versus indie games. Because there's been a lot of role-playing games out there that are being made on a shoestring budget. And you have like the major, the classical publishers, like, uh, you know, well... Wizard of the Coast, which used to be TSR, and that sort of thing. And the, the people making Call of Cthulhu, Chaosium, and so on. Those sort of like the old mainstream games. And then now we have like these indie games that are coming out, and we see that there's a lot of people like maybe playing them, maybe not playing them. And there's a lot of people sort of abandoning mainstream games because you know, they've just gone to a point where they're targeting younger audiences. They're sort of like ignoring the old guard, I guess. So I guess, you know, we maybe can talk a little bit about that. I mean, first of all, I mean, what exactly is an indie game? It's really hard to define what an indie RPG is. There's no official definition, even by like the people who market games as indie. Most broadly, what is said is that these are games that are produced by the authors, that there is no uh, board of directors involved. The trouble is, is there are very few games that have like a giant board of directors or giant development teams anyway. Even many popular RPGs out there are designed by a very, very small team. 
and also the outlets that sell indie RPGs, most famously being Indie Press Revolution, also known as IPR, is now owned by the company that also owns Hero Games, who recently announced that they're no longer producing the Hero System RPG in any significant capacity and are concentrating solely on IPR or as much as possible on IPR, presumably because that's where there's more profit. Yet if you look at some of the stuff that's available at IPR, you'll see Kobold Quarterly, you'll see Pathfinder stuff. That's as unindie as you can possibly get because Pathfinder is the most popular RPG out there. I don't think indie has something to do with popularity. I think I guess the whole idea behind the indie game is that they're independent. Now, in a hobby like, you know, the game hobby like this one, everybody's pretty much an independent. I mean, TSR was probably considered an independent production company when it started out. I mean, you're talking about some people making some game that doesn't use a board, use some dice, imagination. It comes in the form of books, maybe box sets. With still no boards, it was as independent as it used to be, like back in the 70s. They were the original independent publisher in the game industry, this is true. I guess what a lot of people define as indie game is not something that coming up with a game system or a setting that is so out there, out of left field, that it's different from the so-called mainstream. Of course, mainstream being like, you know, fantasy role-playing game, go in the dungeon, kill monsters, steal the treasure, that sort of thing. Or, you know, a typical, you know, sci-fi setting. To some extent, you could even call Traveler an indie RPG because there's a lot of people who play Traveler, but it's when it came out, it was really different from, let's say, Gamma World or the other stuff. It was, I think, more and more we're seeing these independent games are trying to go into territories that usually don't get touched on by all the other game companies. So they cover things that are really out there, but some of them actually do very well, like Mouseguard. I mean, you wouldn't think that, you know, if you told me, oh, I've got this role-playing game, it's called Mouseguard, it plays like this and like that, I'd go, uh, okay. But chances are, you know, you'd think, okay, well, that's an independent RPG, but now it's really popular, uh, won some awards. It, uh, it, it actually won the Origins yeah. Award for Best New yeah. RPG the same year that D&D 4th Ed came out. And so you ask yourself, is that an independent RPG or is that a mainstream RPG? I, I think it's kind of blurring the lines. I, I think the problem is with indie games is that a lot of people associate indie games with sort of like the PDF that's sort of like put together very quickly with some clip art and uh, still some typos in the text and uh, some rules that haven't really been fully playtested. You're using, in other words, the people who use the word indie as a pejorative almost. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people will use indie as a pejorative thinking of these games. And then there are some other games that are really good. Or some games are sort of in between. They're not as bad as some of the games that haven't really been playtested, but they're not as good as some of the other games that have like tons of people working on it and lots of art. It's kind of hard to tell what's an indie game, what isn't. Sometimes I find that a lot of the indie games, too, they use terms like we're a storytelling game. And, of course, storytelling was the big thing for um, White Wolf Wolf, when it started out. And and now people are saying, oh, it's a storytelling game. And then people look at it and they go, well, how how do you say it's a storytelling game? I don't don't see that at all, uh, reading your, your rules. You seem to be just using this as a buzzword to actually make it sound like you've created something that's original. But really... 
it's nothing more than just a just another fantasy game. So it's kind of hard because I guess mainstream people associate mainstream with things that sells very well. And but unfortunately, like role playing games are not being mainstream right now. It's mostly board games and card games like Yu-Gi-Oh. So like what's the difference between indie and mainstream? It seems a little bit difficult to tell these days, except maybe quality. What you're saying there is true about like the sales for sure. Uh, the industry sales stats that come out at websites like ICV2 imply very strongly that the only area of the hobby games industry that is growing in sales are board games, specifically the Euro-style board games. Collectible card games are still a good seller, but they're not growing. Miniatures, if you, in terms of simply, you know, Warhammer or uh, the privateer press products like War Machine, those are selling, but again, no growth. RPGs are not growing and they're not selling well. It's only the board games that are selling well. Uh, speaking of the games that are referred to as indie, we see that there are two general tendencies. There are your basic bread-and-butter type role-playing games that any player of a game like Call of Cthulhu, Dungeons and Dragons, GURPS, Hero System would well recognize where, you know, you've got dice to roll, you've got a target number to beat in order to have an effect, the game master creates the story, and the players participate in the story and show how it unfolds. And within that category, at least among the indie games, you have things like, yes, Mouse Guard, like the various Fate System games like Spirit of the Century or the Dresden Files RPG, and like Colonial Gothic by Rogue Games. These are all basic RPGs that would be recognizable to anyone. Then you've got other ones that are just way, way out there, and the main tendency that we see them going to is getting rid of or at least diminishing the role of the Game Master. Well, it depends. I have a feeling that a lot of indie games will try to do things that are different. There's some games that I take the notion that the whole point of you know, rolling dice and stuff like that and having like some random, you know, you, you look inside the, uh, a drawer and you roll to see if you find anything and then you either find something, you find nothing. And the whole point that some people are actually putting out now when they're making indie games saying, well, why do you care whether or not you roll? Either you find something or you don't find something. That's the important thing. They're actually getting away with some of the rules that are involved in, in these games. There's some other games that actually are trying to find ways of using different things. I mean, one interesting game system that came out, and I guess it wasn't an indie game, but it'd be called indie game if it was being done now, would be like the Weird West gaming system, which used the cards and the chips and the poker chips. It was actually became mainstream because it was basically that popular and it actually came out in books. Who put this game out? That was uh, Pinnacle Entertainment. Okay. It was Deadlands, the role-playing game. And that game used cards, poker cards, and chips as part of his game mechanics. And it worked well with the feeling of the game, which was like Western, which again was not a traditional role-playing game setting. And it was pretty much indie feeling, but it was actually very popular at one point. And Pinnacle's a pretty big company. They're yeah. on par with the mainstreams. But then again, once they got rid of Deadlands, they sold it off to somebody else and all that sort of thing. And they tried to reuse that setting, but it didn't really 
stay that well. So, but the thing is, is that there's a lot of some some indie games actually out there that are pretty close to what mainstream games are. Like if Gamma World was going to come out today. It Which probably, it did back in the fall of 2011. Yeah, and but if it wasn't like Gamma World, like you know, from back then, people would probably consider this to be a indie game, and probably it would not have this much attention as it was one of the earlier games that is just being republished. So, it, what's the difference between indie and mainstream? It's a little difficult to tell, but I think the major problem I th- there is with indie games is if you want to actually do a game, it's mostly the onus on the game master. You're not gonna find somebody placing an ad on Craigslist or at your friendly local gaming store, hey, I want to play a game of Dogs the War. And you go, like, what's Dogs the War? Oh, it's a Sydney game by, you know, Wolf Wolf Productions. Okay, never heard of Wolf Wolf Productions. Don't even know. Like, you know, yeah, it's basically, yeah. it's going to be like a game master is going to introduce his players, but you're not going to have players looking to play this game. And I think that's the big difference between an indie game and a mainstream game. You might actually find somebody saying, hey, I'm looking for a game of, you know, Traveler. Okay, well, that you might have more chance of finding a game master out there that's doing this. But for an indie game, it's so tailored to a specific taste, and it's so small in terms of like the scope and so on. It has to be introduced to an existing group in order exactly. to Exactly. So I think that's the major problem that indie games are facing. I think that's that's why you're not going to find them in, in local gaming stores, because you know the gaming stores, well, they want to carry something that's going to sell. And they already know role-playing games don't sell that well, so they're going to carry the stuff that makes the most sense so that's I think that's the main difference so a lot of the stuff you find with any games you'll find them and you know you'll buy them as PDF and stuff like that and again that's a different crowd not everybody buys their stuff in PDF or online also like if you're a fan of any uh, Dungeons and Dragons edition that came after 3.5 you're not used to buying PDFs anyway because Wizards of the Coast discontinued PDFs for their products a long time ago so that is something that brings the electronic thing it would seem into the margins though the Pathfinder RPG is available by PDF back to this whole thing about getting rid of the game master or at least diminishing his role or alternative resolution mechanisms. I mean, the first game in my mind that could really be called indie was Amber simply because it committed the unthinkable heresy of getting rid of dice. But then again, Amber was one of those games that came out at the time where all those games were kind of... So it, it actually has a following and it has something that a lot of the indie RPGs don't have. Amber has its own convention where people play Amber. Um, They're called Amber Cons. And that sort of thing. And a lot of the new indie games, well, you know, maybe it's the the guy who wrote the game and his bunch of friends who playtested it. And if you're lucky, maybe 50 to 100 people worldwide that actually bought it. And then maybe they're playing this game with maybe four or five people. But you don't have the same amount of people playing these games as some of the older games. And like I said, a lot of the old games that we consider mainstream now probably would be considered uh, indie RPGs now if they were coming out and nobody had ever heard about them because at the time that was all there is. Now there's so many games out there and then the production quality of some of these games is much bigger. If you look at the new Warhammer edition which is like a huge box set with all these cards and all that sort of thing and of course you've got the competition with the board games and so on. A lot of the games, if somebody were to come up with Amber in a day would it be as successful I don't know. If nobody ever heard of Amber before, it just came out now. There are people 
play it. There are people who are re-releasing Amber who've taken on the license from Phage Press. Uh, yeah. No, I'm not saying re-releasing, but I'm saying, let's say you never heard of a diceless role-playing game set in the word of uh, Roger Zelazny, and somebody suddenly comes out with it, it'd be considered indie. Would people actually flock to it, buy it, and would it be as successful as it was? I'm not sure. It, people would just say, oh, it's available in PDF only. Yeah, oh, yeah, the, market, the market certainly isn't as open-minded as it used to be. It was easier for Eric Wujic with Amber Diceless to uh, get his foot in the door way back in the day. This is true. But uh, what about other games that break the mold, or at least try to break the mold of the whole... I game master, I in charge, you player, you do as I say sort of thing. They, well, there's they... one game that, well, there's actually a, one or two games out there, but it was one of them that is as indie as you can get, which is called Panty Explosion. And it sounds like really like a bad title, and it has, really, it's not as bad as the title sounds. It's basically you're playing Japanese schoolgirls with psychic powers trying to find the evil powers. But the it's, title it's, is supposed to be a spoof on uh, bad translation in some manga, right? Something like that. But the thing is, is that the game itself sort of does away with the whole concept of the game master and the players. It's more like an interactive storytelling thing. It has a lot of interplay between the players and the game master. The problem is, is that it does away with what you would consider to be a lot of the tropes of a role-playing game. So the stats and all that sort of thing, everything is replaced by words, everything is replaced by the aspects of the way that you... Like even the combats and, and people have an input in the way things are happening. It's very out there in terms of like experimental, but when you actually try to play it, it's really hard to wrap your mind around it because it's so different from what you're used to. And a lot of people will like it because it is that different, but a lot of people will probably be put off. So games like this that sort of try to change the way that you traditionally play role-playing games, those are what people really view as indie games. Some of them are interesting, but at the same time, it's that much harder to actually get some people. And it's hard enough to convince people that have never played RPGs before to actually start playing into a campaign or trying out the game. So imagine having a game that is so far out that even the people who play RPGs are not exactly you know drawn to it so imagine like trying to promote the hobby with something like this so i have a feeling that a lot of the things that that differentiate in the rpgs from mainstream is that mainstream you know they'll talk about it on the stephen colbert show but in the rpgs we'll talk about an rpg net it does play to a more hardcore audience at the very least your the mainstream rpgs will have been heard of by people in the general public at large who don't play RPGs at all. I mean, so far, there's still only one game like that. That would be Dungeons & Dragons. And in that sense, every game that isn't D&D is technically indie. Well, not necessarily. I mean, Call of Cthulhu is not considered, like, an indie. Delta Green might have started as an indie game, but it got so much recognition that it sort of, like, became part of the mainstream. Delta Green being paid in publishing... But then you have like games like uh, Trail of Cthulhu that are basically taking the Call of Cthulhu game and then adding out their own thing. And it has a very indie feeling, but it's more like mainstream just because maybe of the subject title because it's tied into an existing role-playing game out there. But when you have like a game that really goes out there and creates a totally new world, like playing cats who are, you know, trying to save the world, you're playing Mouse Guard. You're referring to actually a couple of RPGs out there that are both called Cat. 
course, uh, you've got uh, some games too that are, are, are tailored to like you know the furries crowd and so on that you you play an actual animal. But the the whole idea is that you have things like these games that are so different from what you're used to play. You know, there's no fighter mage uh, and that sort of thing. And then you're you've got these things in there that basically I think that's what people see as indie because quite frankly there's nothing worse than having you know I can make a version of D&D that has nothing to do with D&D it's the same thing it has nothing really original and I could say it's indie because you know I'm not a major publishing house and I just put it out but then again it's just the exact same thing as something else so what indie really do have is they're trying to actually go towards a niche and trying to do something that's outside of there, you know? Because you know, if it's just going to be more of the same, except, you know, with not the same quality as what the other people have printed, you know, what's the point? The other tendency that you see among indie RPGs is that very often the game system is tied in with the genre and the setting intimately, such that the system cannot be used for anything else. Well, I mean, there's some indie games. I mean, Fudge RPG, it started off as an indie game. I mean, it wasn't like a major mainstream thing. It, Yeah, it, at a time it was the biggest But it's still a universal RPG. game, yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, the in the Fate system, which powers Spirit of the Century and the Dresden Files RPG, is actually based on Fudge. But you have, it's true, you do have some game systems that are really tied in to the... I mean, one of them is, I think it's called the Fear RPG or, or, or whatever. Use Django Blocks to, to resolve I your... i heard your, of this. You, you, to resolve your combats or, or, or your actions. And the whole point is, is that instead of just rolling a die and... You pull a block. Yeah, you pull a block. And, of course, the idea is if I roll a die, well, once I rolled it, after that it's, everything goes, you know, it's just luck. Yeah, but you if can I roll pull, again and get the same result yeah. later on or get something yeah. totally different. But, but if, if you pull if, a block... And the thing falls down, well, of course, you're the only one to blame. So it actually adds a little bit more tension to the thing. And that was an interesting mechanic. Can you use this to run anything? I don't know. Probably I'd, I'd have a hard time seeing how you can play a D&D game that way. But it worked well for that particular sort of indie. And then there's a lot of indie games too out there that I would say are, are kind of like joke RPGs, uh, like Joint and Drivers. I mean, who the hell... Oh my god, that one. Yeah, who the hell would actually play that? I oh, mean, it's, it's borderline offensive. <laughs> tell, tell our listeners what Joint and Drivers is about. This d- deserves some discussion. As far as I can tell, it's basically a game that's set against the uh, the stories that you would see in black exploitation films from the 70s. Shaft being one of them, but of course I'm talking about some of the grungier ones. It's kind of one of those games that you go like, I can't see anybody really playing it. It's fun to read because, you know, it's just like, oh my god, what the hell... Did anybody think writing this thing is this a joke? It's like well, another one. It does one. have a playable system. It does have a playable system, just like Human Occupied Landfield Hall also has a, a useful system. But I, oh, I, no character generation rules in Hole. Yeah, but then the thing is, is that at least Hole you could probably play it and not sound like a complete racist. Joint and drivers, it's just out there, you know. It's like it's not, it, it's not cool, man. <laughs> but I mean, it's but it, you know, both are kind of like indie sort of like feel because you know they're exploring something that you've, you know, haven't really seen. But then, then again, can you really make a long-term camping with it? That's the other problem. You know, that actually raises an interesting point here. The uh, settings for so many indie RPGs are so idiosyncratic, and I mean, because they're not traditional 
role-playing genres. I mean, you've got games like Dogs in the Vineyard, Mouse Guard, uh, Cat. Stealing Away Jordan. Stealing Away Jordan, and so many that really do use such unique, very specific settings. It's true, it's hard to imagine having a long-term campaign with that because it's almost like the setting or the genre is a gimmick, and okay, you've played it out, well, what do we do now? Whereas, at least in your traditional RPG, if you're killing monsters and taking their stuff and getting experience, you know that next week, with your more experience, you're going to be able to fight bigger and badder monsters and take more valuable stuff. Well, I guess you can do that with these games, but a lot of these indie RPGs, they're nice because it provides you a nice setting. But I see them more as, I could run a, a one-shot adventure, and it's fun for like this one gaming session. But That's why they're so popular at conventions. It works well for a convention. Really, I think what we consider mainstream in RPGs is fantasy role-playing games. Because, you know, when you think of everything else out there, there might be fantasy role-playing games, might be horror, maybe modern-day action, slash espionage, but that's about it. I mean, there hasn't been that many of these other things that if you make something that doesn't fit in one of those major genres, already you're getting into in, uh, indie territory. I'd go take it a step further and just say anything that isn't fantasy is going to be indie. If your criteria are simply sales or popularity, anything that isn't fantasy is going to be way out there and different. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, an espionage game like uh, Spycraft, I would consider as mainstream, not indie. But a game like Spooks, where you're playing a ghost, who's also a spy, and... Who uh, makes this? Oh, I can't remember, but it was a game called Spooks, and you're you're basically playing a, a ghost who's actually a spy, and then you're recruited to actually spy on people. Now that I would say is probably more indie, and there's some games too, like the European board, uh, role-playing games, that are mainstream probably more in Europe, but are considered sort of more indie here, including one where you're playing gods. You know, there's one of them that you're basically you're playing like time travelers, and they actually have like combat for time traveling. In combat, you actually you know have paradoxes and you shoot each other during combat. That's really indie-ish, but the production value in these things makes it look like a mainstream. But here, they're, because they're imported, makes them look like indie. So it's kind of difficult to tell what's indie and mainstream. Hmm. Okay, well, it's certainly something for our listeners to ponder. And if you have uh, your own opinions about this... Uh, please let us know and send us an email at dicecast at polymancer.com. Links are in the show notes. And after this next break, we're going to come back with our interview with Stan Sakai. So welcome back to our last segment of our podcast. We have an interview with Stan Sakai. Uh, Stan Sakai is the illustrator and uh, creator of Yuzaji uh, Yojembo. He's known uh, for his uh, cartoons. He also worked with Sergio Aragones, which was on our show a couple of episodes back. Uh, he actually did some lettering when he started out with him and collaborated on some of his projects. And we actually uh, met with Mr. Sakai at the uh, comic book convention and had the chance to ask him some questions about his creative process and also how he started out in the industry. So that will be coming up next. And there are some links to his page and his works in our show notes so if you can certainly take a look at that and without further ado Stan Sakai 
So I'm here with Stan Sakai at the uh, Montreal Comic Con. Mr. Sakai, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. This is my first time in Montreal and I'm having a wonderful time. So you're a famous illustrator. I mean, how does it feel to be working professionally at something you love? You know, it's the greatest job in the world. I work at home. I set my own hours. And because it's a creator-owned series, I write, I draw, I even letter it. And my contracts with all my publishers have always been whatever I send in, they publish. So my publishers have no input as, at all in the creative process. And it's unusual to have this type of freedom, and I'm just blessed with it. Yeah. So how did you get started drawing? Well, I've drawn all my life, and I grew up reading comics. Comics gave me my love of reading in general. And as I got older... I have a, you know, I took art classes and I wanted to do a series, comic book series, inspired by the life of a real samurai named Miyamoto Musashi. But one day I just drew a rabbit in my sketchbook with his ear t- tied up into a chonmage and samurai top knot, and that's how Usagi was born. And I moved from Hawaii to Los Angeles, and through the grapevine, I heard of a guy in Seattle who wanted to publish a comic book but not having enough work. So I submitted a short feature. He published it. And then uh, Usagi uh, appeared in the second issue of Albedo Number 2. And Usagi's been around ever since. And how long ago was that? That was 27 years ago. And did you think that when you, when you started doing that, that it would still be out there at 27 years after? Did you see it where it is today? Uh, and did you anticipate the success that the uh, series would have? Oh, no, not at all. I was more concerned with what can I do for the next issue. I wasn't thinking of years in advance. But now, because Usagi's been around for a while, I'm laying down groundwork for stories that I won't tell for another two, three, or sometimes even four years from now. In terms of how you actually draw, do you have a, a particular technique that you use to draw and the way that you sort of lay things on a page? Well, because I do the stories myself, I do the writing as well, I first outline a story. And from the outline, I do a thumbnail drawing. So little squares representing a page of comic book art. I lay out the panels and I do a rough indication of what happens in each panel and with a script on the side. From there, I would do the pencils on the, uh, the boards, then the lettering, then the uh, inking. And once the, everything's done, I send the original artwork to Dark Horse Comics. Now, do you have some other series that you're working on currently other than the Usagi? Well, most of my work is with Usagi, but I do other work on the side, such as I do the lettering for... Serge Aragonese's Grew the Wanderer. I do lettering for Spider-Man Sunday newspaper strips. And I do that because I get to work directly with Stan Lee, which is kind of neat. I also, I'm, right now, I'm also doing a story for Dave Stevens' Rocketeer magazine. And for uh, this is a color story for uh, David Peterson's Mouse Guard series. And these, you predict, will be out there in a year, a year and a half? Well, I, the deadline for the Rocketeer story is uh, within a month. The David Peterson Mouse Guard story is uh, not due until the end of this year, so it'll be out next year. And let's see. Oh, I also have a regular feature in World of Warcraft magazine. Uh, it's a one-page uh, cartoon strip every issue. 
Have you ever had a, a project you were working on, you were close to the deadline, and you had like a block, some kind of a writer's block, but I guess an artist's block, and you just didn't know what to draw? Oh, yeah, that happens all the time, but I just shift my focus onto something else for a while.、Um, if I have a writer's block, then I'm already working on another story, penciling another story, or inking another story. So I, I can be inking. And at the same time, have us be thinking of a next story in the back of my head. Or if I don't feel like penciling or inking that day, I'll do the,、uh, the writing. So you have always like one or two projects always at the same time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm currently inking Usagi number 143 for Dark Horse. And I'm already writing the story for 150, no, 146. So, you know, I'm always working. On different parts of the production. Do you often attend conventions like these? Oh, yeah. I was last week, I was in Argentina for both a convention and to、uh, teach a workshop at the university. Before that,、uh, in mid August, I was at the Baltimore Comic Con, and before that, I was at the San Diego Con. Next month, I'll be、uh, doing three signings in Los Angeles, plus, I'll be at the、uh, Long Beach Comic Book Convention. If I understand correctly, you're actually inking something you'll be sending to your publisher like, when you come back. How much of your work do you actually do at conventions? I do as much as I can. I try to write on the plane. And when I'm at the convention, I'm either, if I have the time, I'm either penciling or inking pages. And、uh, these are pages that I penciled in Argentina, and I'm inking here. All right, well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us and hope you have a nice trip back. I understand your plane leaves at five, so. Well, <laughs> yeah, we, we leave the well, hotel leave at, at five. five yes. yes. <laughs> well,、uh, well we're, artists, we're artists, so we, you know, we're up at all, all hours of the night. It's like Serge, I've worked with Serge Argonis for years, and he's one of the people that I know that I can call at two in the morning and I know I won't be bothering him. <laughs> well, I hope you have a nice flight back home and wishing you a good stay in Montreal. Well, thank you. I really wish I could see more of the city, but I've got to get home and work. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. Welcome back. That was our interview with comic artist extraordinaire Stan Sakai. We hope you enjoyed it. We have more interviews in, coming up in future episodes, including an interview with historical speculative fiction author Eric Flint, most famous for the 1632 and other series of historical fiction novels. And we hope that you also enjoyed our discussion of、uh, indie and mainstream RPGs, and, as well as the recent news in the DD front. So, I guess to wrap up, Please stay、uh, tuned for podcasts. And like we said, we have some interviews with Eric Flank and others that we've recorded. And we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to look into our show notes for links about the、uh, pages and the people that we talked about at、uh, this、uh, the show. And again, if you have、uh, any comments or anything you'd like to share with our listeners, you can send them to dicecast at polymasterstudios.com. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. You can find out more about who we are and what we do at our websites, www.polymancer.com 
and our main corporate website, www.polymancerstudios.com. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash polymancer or follow us on Twitter at polymancer. This episode is copyright 2012 Polymancer Studios Incorporated, released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivative works license, the full text of which is available at creativecommons.org. This episode may be redistributed and reposted so long as it is done in unmodified form and due credit is given to the copyright owners. The music for this episode, Fort Minor, Remember the Name, BYFH Remix by Chojin, Violated Instrumental by Technetium, Industrial March Beat by Neurowax, and Triple Layer Guitar in E by Neurowax are also released under the Creative Commons license. Dicecast is a trademark of Polymancer Studios Incorporated. Polymancer is a registered trademark of Polymancer Studios Incorporated. Thank you for listening to the Dicecast. <laughs>